This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch something new in cinemas or on streaming services and compare and contrast it with films from days gone by. We talk about genre, filmmakers, and other cinema-related stuff, and we hope through our journey through movies, we might introduce you to something you haven't seen before. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and journalist. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. Today, we're talking about a Hollywood insider with three-plus decades in cinema whose name may not be familiar, but you'll certainly know the movies he's worked on. Today's episode is devoted to the work of screenwriter and sometime director David Kep. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the movie podcast and radio show that looks at films that are in theaters or on streaming services, and then we delve into some of the people that are behind these films and uh, some of the stories that they have to tell. And before we get going this week, I just want to remind listeners, if you're listening to this show on, uh, what is it, March 24th? second or around that time 2022 uh it is sustainer drive here at ckdu which airs the show every tuesday at 5 p.m and uh if you like the show and you want to support the station where we uh, produce it and also uh which airs it uh please feel free to go to the ckdu website ckdu.ca and learn how to support the station as uh the station has to raise fifteen thousand dollars out of its operating budget as through this drive so uh Give early, give often, and uh, thanks for supporting CKDU. And now to delve into this week's Lens Me Your Ears. We're looking at the work of writer, director, David Kep, uh, a guy who uh, seems to have great taste in films because his influences are pretty pretty much in line with a lot of the stuff that we love, and it just kind of comes out in his work, uh, either uh, as a writer or as a director or working on his own scripts. Um, came out of Wisconsin, uh, went to UCLA Film School, and uh, you know one of his early uh, screenplays, Apartment Zero, which we will talk about later in the show, got him a lot of attention. It was a, a film that film buffs loved because it was about... Uh, the murky world of uh, a film buff uh, living on the edge in Buenos Aires. And uh, like I say, we'll talk more about that film later because uh, it kind of kickstarted his career and, and uh, pretty much uh, got him to the attention of people like Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma, like really big players uh, in a very short time, uh, just because he's such a good writer, such a, a talented um dealer in plots and and uh, character and and not afraid to take a few chances with his stories as well and, and that all is it's a great mixture for someone uh, you know who's a commercial filmmaker but uh, definitely wants to do something uh, a little different from the rest of the pack yeah according to wikipedia Stephen david kep is apparently one of the top 10 most successful screenwriters in hollywood history as measured by box office so you know that that is something worth uh, commenting on but clearly he's a mainstream you know crowd pleaser filmmaker a lot of his own sort of solo i should say sort of independent stuff is he does tend to thriller he likes genre which of course appeals to us but he's written screenplays for steven spielberg uh he wrote the adaptation of jurassic park and its sequel, The Lost World, he wrote uh, War of the Worlds, and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Other prominent scripts include Carlito's Way, 
uh, the very first Mission Impossible film, and Jack Ryan Shadow Recruits. He also wrote Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and uh, the Tom Hanks thriller Angels and Demons. Uh, and he wrote a film we talked about in our David Fincher episode, Panic Room. So uh, he's had plenty of hits and his share of bombs. I did mention that yes. Indiana Jones movie. I guess it did w- well enough, but it sure wasn't well reviewed. Uh, he made he wrote Tom Cruise's The Mummy. And uh, the Johnny Depp film Mordecai, the you know, which I, I no one liked. <laughs> the I don't less think. said, the better. Yeah, indeed, indeed. But we're going to talk about some of his lesser-known films today as a screenwriter and a few of his directorial efforts. We're going to start with a film that's almost brand new, and that's Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy, which is um, is written by Kep, and uh, yeah, it's it's a sharp, uh, very. 2022 thriller uh and uh yeah it's kind of hard to believe we've talked about soderbergh on this show in the past as well and he's releasing movies at an incredible clip right now which is surprising given he said he was going to retire like five or six years ago uh in the past 16 months he released let them all talk no sudden move which we talked about not too long ago and now kimmy which uh is a, a really enjoyable film uh it brings in hitchcock francis ford coppola a little bit of fincher and a really terrific central performance um, from Zoe Kravitz, who plays Angela Childs. She's living in a sprawling loft space in Seattle, all hardwood floors and exposed concrete, and she doesn't have much of a view. She looks out towards other apartments of her neighbors, and you're, you know, a little bit of a rear window there (laughs) going on. More than a little, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then her job is to help sort of a Siri-like desktop virtual assistant, Kimmy of the title, to solve problems by providing a human element to its learning algorithm, reviewing times when its machine mind couldn't answer a user's question. So Angela spends her days listening to other people, and when she hears something that she can't quite explain that sounds like an assault, she puts aside other concerns to mix down background noise to better hear what's going on. There's a little bit of the conversation here it reminded me of, and uh, she obsesses about this, and uh, she struggles with her mental health to the point where she she's an agoraphobe. She can't go outside her front door. Uh, and then, yeah, so the first part of the film is all within that apartment, pretty much. And then uh, we get this incredible uh, outside adventure, this, this 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 sort of restricted time frame thriller in the last uh, half of the film, where uh, Soderbergh is is borrowing. I think he it feels like he's borrowing from David Fincher there, shooting Rooney Mara and Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, like a lot like Elizabeth Salander. All of Angela's body language is saying, stay away from me, you know, and you really feel that. Uh, This is a great, it's kind of a paranoid thriller. It's certainly a tech thriller. Uh, I don't want to say too much more about what happens, but uh, what did you think of it, Stephen? Oh, I really enjoyed it, but this is, of course, the sort of thing, paranoid thriller, you know, Three Days of the Condor kind of thing is really, really up my alley. And, and, uh, you know, it's it's very clear what is influencing this film as you're watching it. I, I don't think... Uh, they're trying to hide uh, where some of these story elements come from, but that's great because they're just, you know, borrowing. I was going to say stealing, obviously, but they're borrowing from some really great uh, stories, some really fine movies, and and uh, and putting it all together with a kind of a a modern day um, uh, modern day techno thriller 
polish and there, there are some some modern day themes about homelessness and and uh and and certainly a technocracy and that kind of thing all in there so it does you know it, it doesn't feel like a throwback necessarily even though uh we recognize where a lot of these story elements are coming from and uh, i really enjoyed it and of course zoe kravitz's performance is really what what ties it all together and she's fantastic uh throughout this film she's just playing this character is really tightly wound and and you really get that feeling of sort of isolation which um, isn't necessarily a bad thing for her. She seems to thrive on it in a way. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, getting these kind of these brief moments of human contact with a neighbor who comes over, you know, as, as, as kind of a booty call kind of situation. But, uh, you know, you, you do feel that kind of element of loneliness in her life and, and, you know, it, it really carries through in a, in a very physical performance as well. Yeah, she wants control. Like, she yeah. is, that's what it's all about. It's it's exerting control to the point where she's sort of doing some damage to herself. And she needs to, there are obviously ways in which she needs to relax just a bit and step away from those obsessions. But uh, it's that very, you know, sharp and a very distinct feeling of knowing what's right and wrong that drives her in the second part of the film to try to find out what's really going on and suddenly realize that uh, there's a lot of stuff that, that's out of her control around her. But there's also moments of, of like, I mean, not to say that this isn't paranoid thriller, but it, there is, I feel like the film is also telling us that uh, our existence, our technology and our relationship with technology, it is a tool that is under con- our control. And I think what what her character, what Angela shows at the end is that she uses the technology to take control of the circumstances and situations. She has uh, an unexpected ally comes out of nowhere who could seem very creepy, but the film doesn't make that ally see actually very creepy. In the <laughs> end. He's pretty benign. Um, and you know, and there is even obviously the pandemic is a part of the story, but it's not like, you know, um, uh, it's not an overpowering one. It just it gives us a sense of this is this is something that happened the last two years in this sort of world. I also wanted to say I really like the uh, the mix of of the sound mix, uh, electronica and solo piano and a kind of Bernard Herman inflected atmosphere from uh, Cliff Martinez, who is a regular uh, collaborator with Soderbergh. Uh, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the film and. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad we actually watched it together, and it was my second time, and I, I enjoyed it even more the second time around. I, I feel like it's a film that would benefit from a second screening. Like, I only watched the one time when, when we watched it together, but but there's so many details uh, taking place, things that are you know view, viewable on their computer screen and, and things that you kind of hear uh, the, in the multi-layered soundtrack and so on. There, there's a lot of detail packed into this film, and it, it's, it's something that I will probably... Uh, you know, most Soderbergh films, I usually end up watching more than once anyway. So I look forward to returning to this uh, not too far down the road. Yeah, and, and it is, of course, Soderbergh has got some sort of deal where he uh, he is he's giving all his films. Now they're all showing up on streaming service. I guess, is it is it Amazon Prime? Or no, H- it's, HBO. It's HBO. Yeah, that's right. And Crave in Canada. And Crave in Canada. That's right. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's almost too bad because, of course, his his films are so thoughtfully constructed in a visual sense uh you know even when he experiments with lenses uh that uh <laughs> you know and sometimes that's a little hard to take i i no sudden move there were moments with the wide angle lens where i was just like what is going on here um but uh but i really still super really enjoyed it and would have liked to have seen it in the big screen certainly kimmy is the same uh it has a uh, has a quality in the in the uh the, the purposeful movement of the camera that uh, that 
it's a bummer that if you don't have the widest screen possible. <laughs> and in terms of our subject today, uh, David Kep, uh, you know, they've been friends for for years and years and years. I think uh, in I think in the commentary talks about was Soderbergh, uh, or actually was in the it was a commentary for a different film that Soderbergh had nothing to do with. Um, they talk about you know a friendship that goes back to Sex Lies and Videotape. I think when they were both kind of on the film fest circuit, and uh, you know that's that's going back. You know, almost thirty years or so, and and uh, these guys have, have been in touch. They've been friends, and this is like their first full-on collaboration yet. If you watch David Kep movies, Steven Soderbergh is often thanked in the credits. I, I wonder if he gives them his scripts to to give him a, a once-over or something like that. Like if if there's uh, some behind-the-scenes uh, help that they've been giving each other uh, over the years. But uh, this is uh, hopefully it's not their last collaboration because it seems there are a lot of places where their filmographies intersect in terms of their interests and in terms of like. Thrillers and and interesting twists and 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 um, you know turning uh, story conventions on their head. They seem to share a lot of that in common. So um, it's uh, it's it's great that they finally got to work together. Yeah, absolutely. It took a while, but I'm really glad to see that this happened because I think uh, Kimmy is the strongest film from either of them in some time. And uh, yeah, it's it's a great collaboration. Um, now, you know, we're going to talk a lot about David Kep's scripts work where he's working for other filmmakers and he's writing these screenplays, but he does direct as well occasionally. And in 2020, he made a feature film called You Should Have Left. This is one that, uh, kind of went under my radar when it came out. Um, I don't know what kind of a theatrical release it got here. I don't think it got one here. Um, it may have been one of those films that uh, was scuppered by the pandemic, but, uh, it is available on Crave right now here in Canada. And, um, I <laughs> I have to admit, you know, in my challenge to see eight to ten films uh, sometimes with this with this podcast, I don't always get to see all of them. You're better at this. It's scheduling your time, I guess, Stephen, <laughs> than I am. But uh, I left. You should have left for the last one to watch, and I got only about 30 minutes in. I actually watched a little bit of it before I came here to meet you, and uh, I was really enjoying it, so I'm kind of bummed. I'm going to have to watch the rest of it, but I am i can't really talk about it because I didn't see, you know, I saw a couple <laughs> with, uh, you know, the, she's a Hollywood starlet. He's a, uh, he's, he's a guy with a past. He's much older than she is, and they go on a vacation to Wales and, and move and stay in a lovely modernist home and then things start to get weird and that's pretty much what i got out of it let tell the people what you make of uh, of you should have left yeah well th that's basically it that that uh that the uh, kevin bacon and amanda seafried's characters have this relationship this way this marriage that's on fairly rocky ground uh you know he's very jealous and and she's very much younger than him i think you know 25 years or so younger i mean it's a substantial age gap and it does play a significant role it's not one of those things where it's just because it's an older leading man and a younger uh, actor playing the wife no they're, they're actually the, the the age gap is, is is significant in the over the course of the film and uh it's it's a truly kind of creepy, scary film. This this uh, modern home on this uh, farmland in in Wales turns out to have some some strange secrets, and uh, you know the, the the people in the town all seem to know uh, there's something wrong with the house. <laughs> they don't necessarily go out of their way to tell this family that's decided to rent it for the for the week, but uh, they're not the most helpful locals. They're, they're more of the kind of the creepy locals that you often get in some of these, um, you know, UK set thrillers. And, uh, you know, 
Bacon plays a character who's got some issues, and you know, it's he's not quite as nasty as he his character in uh, in the recent film that we saw, the Invisible Man movie, um, directed by Paul Verhoeven. Oh, Hollow Man. Hollow yeah, Man. Yeah. He's he's not evil like that character, but you know, he's he's got a temper, and he's he's not necessarily the most reasonable husband in the world. And he and Amanda Seyfried's character, they 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 seem to bicker a fair amount, and um, so it, you know, it's 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 a it's a pretty you know it's a pretty realistic look at a marriage that that needs some help and uh you know staying at this house turns out not to be the help they were looking for because uh it's just it's it's a weird weirdly built place none of the none of the walls are at right angles uh nothing seems to fit together it seems to be doesn't seem to be the same size on the inside as it is on the outside it's not tardis necessarily but um <laughs> there's and there's it's clearly a gateway to something else that, that not necessarily an afterlife or another dimension, but the, the, there's definitely weird time shifts happening, and it, it's all it all comes very clear as the story progresses. It's not a sort of an obscure or hard to understand film, but it, it does take a few interesting twists and turns along the way, and uh, it definitely comes in line with uh, Kep's avowed love of the Twilight Zone, which uh, plays a big part, I think, in a lot of the films that he wrote and direct himself. Uh, that uh, you know, he he's a big fan of the Twilight Zone, and he likes those kinds of stories that have a vague supernatural um you know undefinable uh quality about it they, you know there may or may not be a twist you're not really sure when it's coming if it's coming and and that's a quality that uh, seems to stand out in the, in the stuff of his own that he directs himself and it's certainly the case here and um we will talk about stir of echoes another film uh, of his that also stars kevin bacon and uh, has uh, some similar themes and uh you know similar themes and ideas they're very much uh kind of uh, connected by that um, that spooky sense of unreality okay so on today's lens mirror ears we're talking about the career of david kep a wildly successful screenwriter and you know usually successful uh, director and filmmaker in uh, in hollywood and we're going back to the beginning of his career where he wrote a film called Apartment Zero from 1988. I saw it back in the day. I saw it in cinemas, I think, uh, when it first came out. Now, this is a film that was directed by Martin Donovan, not that Martin Donovan, not the Martin Donovan, uh, the, the actor, but a writer-director who apparently grew up in Buenos Aires. And so he, uh, he I guess, was the heart of this story, and, and he brought Kep on to, you know, work on the script. And it's about a character named Adrian Leduc, played by a very fresh-faced Colin Firth. If you are a Colin Firth fan, <laughs> this is a film to see. He's great in this. He's got a gorgeous flat in Buenos Aires. He runs a rep cinema. He loves classic Hollywood, even less classic. Uh, I noticed his, sp his cinema had a Spanish Eyes of Laura Mars poster in the projection booth. Um, and he judges people on whether they know who Geraldine Page is. Uh, he pretends not to speak Spanish to keep people away, but the cinema's not doing very well, and his mother is sick and in care, and so he, he takes on a tenant. And that's Jack Carney, played by Hart Bachner, who I know mostly from being the sleaze Harry Ellis in Die Hard. Um, <laughs> though Bachner also is a director, and he directed a fraternity comedy in Toronto years ago with Jeremy Piven and John Favreau called PCU. A friend of mine played the naked guy in that movie, <laughs> if, uh, if one character on campus who doesn't wear any, any clothes. Anyway... <laughs> I don't know. PCU is lost to time, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but it's it's just a funny connection. Anyway, so in uh, Apartment Zero, Adrian hates 
the fact that Jack is friendly with everybody and the other residences of the flat, uh, the building, and Jack's very seductive. He manages sort of to talk with the lonely married woman next door and the the elder the two sisters downstairs it's and he is you know i don't know how much range that um hart bachner has i haven't seen him in a lot of things but he it is for fans of die hard it's very much like spending a whole movie with harry ellis he is like, <laughs> like you know you have to expect him to say hans booby you know <laughs> um Anyway, so it's a really homoerotic film, at times also very funny. There's a scene where Jack climbs a ladder in a foyer to save a cat, which is so funny because you don't really see him up on the ladder. You just see his face and you see the faces <laughs> the of all the... up on that cat. Uh, the cat, yeah. Funny. And there's the whole group of expats in the apartment building watching and... Uh, Uh, We get a real portrait of Buenos Aires at the time, the street scenes, the malls, various sites and buildings, and this kind of sexual underworld at night. Uh, And then there's a thriller subplot and a suggestion that Jack might be involved with the political killings that have been taking place around town and maybe involved with a former military dictatorship. I felt like it was really Polanski uh, influenced, the tenant especially, and uh, Rosemary's Baby. But uh, there's a lot going on in the film. I don't know if it all works, but I really found it entertaining, Uh, even in the third act when it got kind of ridiculous. Um, it sure isn't boring. What did you make of it, Stephen? Yeah, I saw this when it came out as well. It played at Wormwood's uh, Dog and Monkey Cinema here in Halifax, and it was a real treat to to, to watch it again for the first time since then. you know, thankfully, you have the DVD of it. I, I don't know that it's that easy a film to track down, but it is an interesting thriller. It is very much of its time in some ways. There are some filmmaking techniques. Uh, it's kind of like some slow mo and some some camera tricks that uh, that did not make it into the 1990s. But they feel very much <laughs> like an indie film uh, of the late 80s. Uh, and uh, the two characters are, are very charismatic, even though they are both very deeply flawed in, in so many ways. Um, and yet it's, it's interesting how well they, they kind of bounce off of each other. And uh, you know, there's some references made to the odd couple because they are, in fact, an odd couple. But in fact, Martin Donovan wrote for the odd couple. No <laughs> he, kidding. In the se- yeah, in the 70s, he was, he, he was a TV writer in Hollywood. He, he was actually born and raised in Buenos Aires, I guess, as part of a kind of a British expat community. But then he, he went on to Hollywood and uh, was a very prolific uh, television writer and for shows like, you know, The Odd Couple and, oh. and like Happy Days and things like that. And um, so when they make an Odd Couple fil- uh, joke in the film itself, it has a little extra resonance than, than you'd think if you didn't know his, um, if you didn't know his resume. So, uh, the, and there's, you know all the layered kind of film jokes like the, the like Martin or Colin Firth always playing this game where you have to guess a movie by listing three you know below the line players in a film um, you know trying to guess a movie by who's in it and and uh, Hart Bachner blows it by you know he, he, one of the films he, he mentions Art Garfunkel and and he instantly guesses it because of course Art Garfunkel's only in like two or three movies and so he guesses Catch Twenty Two um, and uh, so there's there's lots of fun sort of digs at film buffs and how nerdy they can be amidst this whole thriller plot. And, uh, you know, there's a really nice balance between the comedy and the sort of dramatics of, of this killer on the loose storyline, which, you know, isn't a huge surprise when, when things start to come to light. And it, I think, I think maybe it does take a bit longer than it needs to, to get there, but it does have a heck of a finale and, uh, you know, an interesting, uh, 
transformation uh, for Colin Firth uh, over the course of the film, you know, as he kind of comes out of his shell a little bit. So uh, you know, as a character study, I thought it was pretty successful. Yeah, I, I very much enjoyed it. It's it's uh, and I am a big fan of films that really do a, a job of you know, bringing to life the place they're shot, like a lot of exteriors at night in Buenos Aires. Like I really felt, I've never been to Buenos Aires, but I really felt like I got a sense of the atmosphere of the city, I guess. And, uh, you know, who knows if it's still like that now, this was shot more than 30 years ago, but it, uh, it, you know, in terms of location stuff, I really, the, you know, it's that old cliche, the, the city is a character in the film. That's very much the case with this movie. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the next film on our list from uh, David Kep, and uh, this is another one that he wrote the screenplay for. Bad Influence from 1990, directed by Curtis Hansen, who uh, you know, L.A. Confidential is probably his most famous film. Uh, but this, this although it was released in 1990, it has the 1980s written all oh, over it. Oh man! <laughs> um, it was right around the time Hollywood decided it was time for James Spader to become a star, and he didn't quite make it on the big screen. I mean, he he had some movies, and he was in you know a bunch of things, Stargate and other other things. Um, hey, Sex Lies and Videotape. Yeah, sure. I mean, he was in some <laughs> independent films, but I think most people thought of him as the regular sleaze in John Hughes movies and Less Than Zero. Uh, but, of course, he would become a star years later on television in shows like Boston Legal and The Blacklist. Um, but, uh, yeah, so here he's uh, – Spader is Michael, who is a, comes off kind of a sensitive, slightly milquetoast financial analyst whose fiancé walks all over him and his colleagues walk all over him. Uh, and he's some kind of chronic stomach ailment, which doesn't actually come to much. He's, he's just kind of feeling – crappy a lot of the time and then he meets alex played by rob lowe who inspires him to put a little steel in his spine and get revenge on an a-hole colleague um michael discovers alex is charismatic but also a compulsive liar he's prone to giving people different names and he puts on different accents and different lives he seems to be interested in helping you know his new pal who he calls mick uh, but there's a again that sort of distinct homoerotic vibe between them i, I found it quite smoothly directed i i really enjoyed that 80s sort of background sax and the whole strategic <laughs> lighting you know so the much sax. venetian blinds and the whole business um you know and there's a lot of dry wit in the script uh i, I the suddenly slick mick with his hair greased back he finds confidence with with everything um and uh but then Alex, of course, gets prone to even more crazy behavior, and uh, he brings out the very worst in uh, himself and in others. And, uh, yeah, and then there's a strange character, the anxiety-ridden older brother, Pismo. It's called Pismo? Like, anyway, there's there's some <laughs> weird stuff in here. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an 80s thriller through and through with some nice twists towards the end that took me in places I didn't see. I didn't see where it was going to go. Yeah, I I can't believe I didn't. This is my first time watching it, and it's a film I've always been aware of since it came out. And of course, uh, at the time it came out, there's a lot of publicity because it came out around the time that there was a Rob Lowe sex tape that came out uh, where he was involved with a, a couple of young women around the time of uh, one of the Democratic National Convention or something like that. Oh yes, and and there's a sex tape subplot in the film, and it was just the weird coincidence of of real life and and uh, you know when. Um, Alex uh, secretly films 
uh, Michael and then plays the tape uh, of him and this woman from a he picked up in a bar plays it at the the wedding reception or the, the yeah it's w- like a wedding rehearsal party or something yeah, like something that. with yeah the fiance is not and her family are not impressed no, it's actually quite it's quite funny uh, it's that one of those moments of like really dry humor which I was like wow okay so that, this is happening now <laughs> yeah the, there is a there is a dark vein of humor running through this film as you noted and and uh, I really appreciated that uh, the, the the story never stops moving it's still high highly entertaining today i mean it, the, i mean the last couple of times i've seen rob Lowe, he's he's been on things like parks and rec where he's playing a very chipper upbeat positive guy and you sort of forget that he had this darker side to his personality and it comes out so well here he plays such a sleazeball and and the way that he keeps michael kind of at, at arm's length while he cooks up all these plots within plots you know and 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 then of course has to have all these kind of mechanisms to protect himself when Michael starts to fight back and, and realizes that, uh, that his new buddy isn't acting in his best interests at all. And, and the, the way that the whole story turns on a dime is, is really fascinating. And I find that they're, they're that low and Spader are a good match, uh, you know, for each other with their sort of the alpha and beta personalities in this film. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I think Rob Rob Lowe has always just been a little too pretty for me. <laughs> um, you know, he is good in this part. I won't deny it. But uh, and then he brings that sleaze, which we don't see enough from him. And I think he has that. But uh, uh, you know, I often think maybe they could have switched roles because Spader is so compelling when he's being truly evil. And uh, and I could believe Lowe as kind of like out, a little bit out of his depth. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it it's they have chemistry these two guys, and I I really enjoyed the film and and uh yeah I, it's 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 amazing that uh i don't know i mean now that we're, you're talking about the whole sex tape scandal i i can't imagine how it's amazing how quickly that just got people just forgot about that <laughs> yes and well. he went on to be in the west wing and other you know huge hits uh, rob lowe just kind of bounced back and it, it's it's worth noting I, I mean i think rob lowe was picked for that character because kept uh kind of based alex a little bit on ted bundy and so I think he wanted, not that Rob Lowe necessarily looks like Ted Bundy, but he, you know, he was looking for an actor with that kind of charisma that Bundy exploited uh, in terms of uh, his victims. And I think he was looking for something similar with with uh, with Alex and Rob Lowe fit the bill pretty well. Okay, I did not know that. But uh, hey, let's talk about uh, another David Kep screenplay, uh, and which he co-wrote with his brother, who was a journalist, Stephen Kep, and that's for Ron Howard's The Paper from 1994, a film that a lot of people, I think, point at as one of the great journalism films. I don't know that it is. I uh, I liked it, but I don't know that I would put it amongst, you know, uh, All the President's Men or, um, you know, Spotlight or something like that. It's... Uh, it's a film that takes place in a single 24-hour time period, which I liked. Uh, Michael Keaton plays Henry Hackett, who's an assignment editor at a tabloid newspaper, something called the New York Sun. His partner is a reporter, Martha. She's played by Marissa Tomei, and she's like 10 months pregnant. She's she's as big as a house. And he has an interview with an uptown newspaper, but isn't sure respectable journalism is the way to go. So Tomei gets the first good line in the in the film, which is bladder control is one of those things you really take for granted until it's gone. Uh, and then someone else says, Donald Trump just jumped off a building and landed on Madonna. <laughs> it's kind of like overheard in the newsroom kind of dialogue, which I really laughed at. Um, 
and uh, Robert Duvall is in it. He's, I guess, the publisher or something. Uh, I'm not sure of all the, the jobs of all the people, all the cast, but uh, you've also got Glenn Close, Randy Quaid, Lynn Thigpen, Clint Howard, Jeffrey Owens, and Spalding Gray in two scenes with Jason Robards, Jason Alexander, and Catherine O'Hara in single scene cameos. I mean, that's what really, I think, makes this film work is this terrific overall cast. Yeah, it's it's enjoyable. It, I don't it's I don't think it's a terribly um, realistic look at life at a at a big city tabloid uh, necessarily. Uh, obviously, you know things have changed a lot since this film came out. Uh, as someone who works at a uh, a medium city newspaper, you know, just I felt kind of jealous seeing like these busy newsrooms full of full of people working at their um, monochrome, uh, word processors. And, you know, I, a lot of the time, most, you know, now where I work, everybody works from home. Um, I go into the office and it's me and the web editor and maybe somebody laying out some pages on the other side of the room. And that's kind of it. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of miss that camaraderie that is so obviously on display here. And that, that, uh, esprit de corps amongst all the people that work for the paper and, and the work they're doing to, to get it out every day. And before it becomes, uh, you know, birdcage liner and fish, and fish wrap the next day i guess but uh you know i i, I enjoyed keaton's role you know he, he definitely keeps the momentum going in this story uh i don't know that any of the stories that they were working on were all that compelling that 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 maybe the the storyline could have pumped up the importance of whatever stories they were working on like you say it's not all the president's men i guess it's more about the mundane you know realities of of trying to find that big story of the day you know to make the the evening's headlines and then and then of course there's a whole lot of um folder roll about uh you know whether or not uh the headline that they're going to run is actually true or not and it delays the paper and you know michael keaton runs down to kind of um keep the the incorrect uh, story from from going to press and and he fights with glenn close over over it she goes we'll correct it tomorrow we'll just we'll print what we got today and and so on and you know so there's that whole thing about uh, journalistic ethics versus uh the um the need to just get the stories out there and get the paper on the street and uh the, the one of my favorite scenes in the whole film is where uh yeah, I think it's uh, Randy Quaid says, haven't you ever wanted to say it? Don't you just want to say it? <laughs> what? Stop the presses. <laughs> you know, that, that, that might be my favorite line in the, in the whole movie personally. And, and Keaton sells it so well. He <laughs> just that glee on his face when he actually gets to say it. Um, you know, the, the, one of the, the oldest cliches in the f- newspaper or film world. Uh, but uh, it's, yeah, th- there's a certain lack of weight to the story i felt like it, uh, there was a lot of there's a lot of activity and a lot of fuss but i i the drama of it i, I guess didn't really hit home and I, I it has kind of a, a slightly confused tone over, over whether or not it's a comedy of whether it's like a his girl friday type screwball comedy or you know something that want, has more serious things to say about daily uh, newspaper journalism and and um you know I, I feel like ron howard's kind of playing both sides of the fence here and and uh it, it's not as good as it could have been, I think, if he'd made it, made up his mind over what kind of film he was making. Yeah, I'm with you there. I got the screwball parts. Uh, I got the, the, you know, the moments of, of seriousness. But over the overall, I, I yeah, it's a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit mushy. And uh, I mean, I still enjoyed it. I think it's a reasonably solid Ron Howard movie. And how often can you say that? But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I think the, the, the performances won me over. 
um, you know, and when uh, when Jason Alexander shows up for a great scene in a bar, I really <laughs> yes. enjoyed that. Uh, and Glenn Close is terrific as well. Uh, she actually does a pratfall at one point on that uh, on the the printing uh, area, the floor there. I I thought was well, it's probably not her, but it sure looked like her. Um, so before we wrap up this segment and talking about David Kep, we I want to just quickly mention the Shadow from 1994. Now at this point, Kep was a high in demand screenwriter for blockbusters with all the success of Jurassic Park. And uh, so The Shadow is directed by Russell Mulcahy, director of Highlander. And uh, it's not very good, frankly. Uh, (laughs) I I, I remembered it as being more fun than than it was. And I guess there's a camp humor. They're trying to recreate the success of Batman with another sort of pulp character from the 40s or the 30s. Uh, And you've got Peter Boyle, Ian McKellen, Tim Curry, Jonathan Winters, you know, it, you got such a good cast here, but it's a terrible movie, and uh, it's made worse by sort of Asian stereotypes and hokey mysticism, uh, and so I can't very well recommend it. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much all I got to say about The Shadow. Yeah, I mean, I was a big fan of the character. I, I'd read some of the original pulp stories and uh, it, the the Howard Chaykin comic, which was very racist and very sexist. Uh, which I think was the primary uh, influence on this film uh, from the, from the mid eighties or thereabouts. I remember reading it in university. Yeah. I remember it too. Sure. Uh, and uh, you know, he just kind of exploited the, the, the sex and, and scandal aspect of it for all it was worth. Um, and of course, then there's the radio incarnation, which avoids a lot of that stuff, but it completely changes the nature of the character from what was uh, being written in the pulp, uh, the pulp series um, to kind of pare it down to get rid of some of the, uh, auxiliary characters and this this film tries to kind of get a balance between the various incarnations of the shadow the comic book version the pulp fiction version and the radio version and it doesn't necessarily do such a great job of it it brings in some of the characters that were left out of the radio show like the cabbie um, played by peter boyle who's a lot of fun um but it's 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 kind of a mishmash. John, John Lone uh, is kind of fun as the ancient Mongol warlord who comes back to life and comes comes to the city to duke it out with uh, with the shadow. They had the same uh, uh, martial arts master back in Tibet. But yeah, but he's got a terrible fake beard. Oh, oh my yeah. Gosh. Oh yeah. So so cheesy. Um, you know, clearly Universal wanted to have its own Batman, and I'm sure they were even hoping for sequels and things. There were toys. I have a shadow action figure from this film. I mean, Universal sunk a lot into this movie and it the audience uh, the public at large did not remember the character had no desire to see a movie about him and it's just as well given the end product hi i'm Lindsay cameron wilson host of the food podcast but do you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food the food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale how about that You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to our third and final segment of Lens Me Your Ears. And this week we're looking at the work of writer and director David Kep, who is uh, one of the most successful screenwriters in Hollywood history. His name is on blockbusters like uh, you know Jurassic Park and um, you know work with uh, Spielberg and Brian De Palma Snake Eyes and uh, Carlito's Way one of the better De Palma films Snake Eyes not one of the better De Palma films <laughs> which might be why we didn't get to <laughs> which it which is why we didn't I saw it once and that was that was plenty um, but uh, 
you know, he, he, he likes to spend some time behind the camera as a director as well. Uh, you know, I think he, maybe he set out to be a filmmaker and decided to, you know, submitting scripts was the, the way to get enough uh, influence and uh, notice that he could uh, graduate to attracting producers to direct some of his own work. And, and eventually that, uh, that became the case. Uh, he's, his career, uh, his track record as a director is, is a little spotty, but the ones that work really work. And, uh, you know, especially when he's uh, focusing on kind of genre material, he likes, uh, we mentioned earlier that the Twilight Zone, I think that'll come into play in some of the films we're going to talk about in this segment, um, starting with The Trigger Effect, which came out in 1996. Uh, I saw it on Laserdisc back in the day. I don't think it played a theater around here, but it uh, it did have some kind of uh, prominence on video, um, thanks in part to its cast, starring uh, Kyle MacLachlan, who's uh, hot off of Twin Peaks at the time, and um, Elizabeth Shue, who's a favorite uh, leading actress in the, in the 90s. And uh, they play Matthew and Annie. They're a successful couple. They have the perfect life, and uh, they have a lovely home and a wonderful, beautiful daughter. And then uh, all of a sudden, there's a mysterious power outage uh, that plummets their neighborhood into darkness, and it, it continues on for days. And uh, nobody's really sure what's happening or what's caused it. There's lots of rumors going about um, as to, to what's happening. And, uh, and as a result uh, of this uh, lack of power, society starts to kind of fall apart. Uh, the, the neighborhood... Uh, group the neighborhood association is kind of a microcosm of society as they kind of bicker about what to do and you know how helpful they're going to be to each other and and people start to get a little desperate um uh people start uh, talking about weapons and and defending themselves from intruders and uh things take a turn when uh matthew's old friend from school joe turns up played by dylan mcdermott and uh, there's uh, there's is there's, it dylan mcdermott or dermot mulrooney oh you know what <laughs> <laughs> they made it they even had a joke about this on saturday night live i think it, it, it all... is you know what i fell for it it is dermot mulrooney <laughs> i'm gonna leave that in there because that was my i wrote down dylan mcdermott in my notes uh, and it's so clearly dermot mulrooney um but uh at any rate uh, he just kind of turns up out of the blue because of course he's been thrown into the dark as well so he meets up uh with his friend they've been friends since high school uh and Apparently they were good buddies, but there's some tension there because apparently Joe has a thing for Annie as well. And, uh, you know, know, Matthew uh, was the one who married her, but there seems to be some attraction uh, that's uh, long dormant between uh, Annie and Joe. And and, then Matt kind of gets his back up about it. So we've got that. We've got this uh, love triangle happening of sorts and plus some resentment, you know, Matthew is, well, I don't know, I can't remember what his job is, but he works in finance and pulls down a hundred grand a year or something like that. And, um, you know, Joe uh, went into construction and does very well as a carpenter foreman, but he thinks his friend Matt looks down on him for that. And, uh, and he feels that Matt is kind of condescending towards him because he, you know, he's, he works with his hands or what have you. So, uh, between this relationship and, um, it's uh, it's inner tension is sort of magnified by the events happening around them. And at some point they decide to hit the road and uh, make their way to, I think uh, Matthew or Annie's parents place in Colorado uh, where apparently they have power or they just think things will be better there. So uh, it turns into a bit of a road trip towards the end of the film. And we, we get into this kind of whole societal distrust and, um, and human nature. Um, and, uh, and there's, there's kind of a, 
not necessarily supernatural aspect to it, but there's certainly an otherworldly nature uh, about this power outage. And the, if it feels kind of Twilight zone uh, at one point uh, they show the street signs where Matthew and Annie's house is, and it's uh, Maple and Willoughby Streets, uh, which both take their names from Twilight Zone episodes. So uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street and uh, next stop uh, Willoughby, or a stop at Willoughby. So, you know, definitely a nice nod for those who know the influences. I sort of feel like Kep would be good, you know, producing a series if, of this kind of thing. Yeah, right? for sure. Clearly got a lot of ideas around it. And right, the thing about Trigger Effect that I really enjoyed was how, you know, the film is really about class and about... Yeah. Uh, you know, gender dynamics and class issues and racial issues and male insecurity. Now, this is something we see again and again in his films. And I, you know, I'm a little reluctant to draw too many threads between all of his movies because they're very different. And there's a lot of he's clearly comfortable writing many different kinds of stories. But I, I see again and again toxic male characters in his films, like behaving badly towards women or making decisions based on their own insecurities. And uh, that is definitely the case with the characters here. Certainly Kyle McLaughlin's character is has got some, some stuff. His friend, his pal, you know, isn't entirely off the mark that there is uh, the blue-collar, white-collar tension is there. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the script, and a lot of the directorial choices, I, I think they're okay. There's a there's a, some lighting that hasn't aged well, some 90s lighting, I think, of the blue light through Venetian blinds <laughs> yes. and yellow light. It's funny, I was just saying how much I like that in the 80s style, but in the 90s style, it just looks kind of cheap. Um, it is funny how lighting design has an era and can age poorly, depending on your preference. Uh, but there is a terrific shot of the car broken down on the side of the road and a crow on a dead tree and then the cooling towers from a nuclear plant off in the distance it all just feels like very apocalyptic just as michael rooker shows up with all his henry portrait of a serial killer <laughs> nastiness you know um there's some yeah there's some really cool stuff in this film and i, I was glad we had a chance to to catch up with it and i think i think i probably would recommend it if if people are interested well, continuing on the theme of uh, toxic masculinity, let's let's look at a thriller that he directed in 1999. So this is David Kep directing his own screenplay, but based on a story by Richard Matheson, who is, of course, one of the finest writers of fantastic fiction, famous for works like I Am Legend, which became The Omega Man, and also uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man. In fact, I think we see a copy of The Incredible Shrinking Man novel at some point in the movie. And I think Matheson wrote some episodes of either Twilight Zone or, or The Outer Limits or both. You know, it definitely cranked out a lot of scripts for those kinds of shows. So obviously a big influence on Kep, and and, and uh, he takes on this story about a, a ghost that's kind of haunting this uh, couple. Again, another couple, they're haunted by some strange occurrences in their house. This time it's Tom, uh, who's a lineman for the county, uh, as it were, uh, played by Kevin Bacon, and his wife Maggie, played by Catherine Erb. And they live in an old Chicago house. And um, their son Jake has the shining. I mean, well, he talks to a ghost. He sees, <laughs> he sees dead, dead people. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> there's some definite uh, sixth sense uh, echoes here, which is interesting because they both came out in '99. So yeah, that's there's very weird, close together. Weird parallels, and uh, it's you know I saw this uh, I saw this in the theater when it came out, and it was a great way to see it because it, it is. Uh, it is a you know honest to goodness ghost story, and there is some some great truly uh, eerie th stuff happening over the course of this film as uh, as Tom kind of starts to lose it, and it turns out that he I guess in his family there is this kind of inherited sixth sense as it were uh, that um, 
that uh, gives them some sort of connection with the with these spirits and you know he's trying to get to the bottom of what it is that's going on in his house and uh, there's also um you know there's also a lot of uh investment in the neighborhood again, just sort of like in a trigger effect. Um, you know, we get a lot of feel for his neighbors and, and the people in the neighborhood and maybe some secrets that they're hiding. And I don't want to say too much about it because uh, obviously, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's got a mystery to solve, uh, with the supernatural element. And, uh, it's, it's very compelling over the course of the, the very taut and, uh, qu- quickly moving film. Yeah, I liked it too. And I like that community feel like the, the working class portrait, you know, I mean, it's a thriller, it's a genre film. So, so there it's, it's aim is delivering those kinds of thrills, but it does have moments that feel like it could, it could just be a drama about how people behave and, and how desperate people might behave and given certain circumstances. Uh, I really liked Ileana Douglas in the film. Uh, she's very funny and yes. uh, sort of a new age witch. She's into astrology and hypnotism. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I, uh, I like that it has some, you know, Cronenberg-esque body horror. Uh, you mentioned The Shining. It's definitely got a little, a little of that in it. Uh, it also has one of the more irritating tropes of Hollywood movies of any stripe which is the child who is wiser and more mature than any adult in the room that bugs me but the actual kid child actor who's who played the kid jake is actually really good so i could forgive a lot of that um it's also maybe one of the most white movies i've seen in a long time i don't think there's a person of color with a line of dialogue anywhere in the picture even for the 1990s that's a bit weird but uh it's a lot better looking than trigger effect so i feel (laughs) like um you know over the the years in between uh kept managed to get a better sense of his directorial style and i think he i think he delivers it stir of echoes by the way is available to be watched on canopy which of course is free through the library and uh yeah i I, i'm glad to have finally seen it it was my first time well let's uh let's move on to our final film in this show and it's a it's a film that i feel like was heavily hyped at the time but didn't necessarily become a big hit as a result which seems to be a a trend with David kept films, but but if you watch them in hindsight, they 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 still work pretty well. And that's a thriller called uh, Premium Rush, and it's uh, it's essentially a a cat and mouse game between a bike courier who's got uh, an important. Um, I guess it looks kind of like a lottery ticket that he's got to get um, to a, an important higher up in the uh, the Chinatown mafia, as it were, and the Tongs and. Um, the cop who uh, obsessively needs to get that uh, valuable ticket in order to get the the money that it represents to clear his gambling debts. So uh, you've got Michael Shannon as uh, a cop who introduces himself as Forrest J. Ackerman, which is a pretty obvious uh, genre nod, the uh, the famous uh, publisher of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Uh, so there's, there's a, a nice little... Uh, tip of the hat for the obsessive fans. And, um, he's after, uh, Willie, uh, uh, who's a, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt, who's our two wheeled hero, uh, on the streets of New York. And, uh, you know, th- there's really not a whole lot to the plot. You know, he's, he's got to deliver this package. Michael Shannon needs to intercept it. And, uh, a lot of the other, uh, bike couriers get kind of caught up in the chase along the way. And it's, it's, it's a real, uh, it's a real pulse pounder. I mean, you know, someone who's ridden uh, a bicycle in, uh, in city traffic, <laughs> some really tense moments um, uh, as as he just dodges vehicles uh, willy nilly from one end of Manhattan to the other. It's it's really well filmed in that regard. And there's some great moments where um, Willie or Wheelie, Wiley, I Wiley, think. like Wiley, like Coyote. Coyote. Yeah. Sorry, there we go. <laughs> Again, I'm reading my notes that I took two weeks ago. But the the um, yes, Wiley uh, 
is you know he he's, he's as he comes up to an intersection he looks for his best possible point of uh, of exit and uh, he imagines the various accidents that could befall him uh, along the way and it's 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 very funny to to watch the different very wily coyote esque accidents that uh, occur in his mind's eye while he tries to find the best way through an intersection to avoid. Uh, pedestrians and vehicles and that kind of thing and uh it's it's done with a lot of style and a lot of energy and it's really worth a watch yeah i am 100 percent with you here i was so impressed with the way this was directed like the way the camera moves through uh traffic and the way the camera follows a cyclist through traffic sometimes riding against traffic was so much fun and this is also a film although you mentioned the plot is pretty straightforward it's told out of uh, sequence so it's a non-linear uh, film narrative non-linear film so it jumps back and forth over about the course of three hours on a summery New York afternoon and then you know kept shoots it and then edits it in a very highly caffeinated fashion complete with these digital miniatures of the map of New York City that the camera zooms in and zooms out of uh, turning it into sort of a, um, a, a map that we can sort of see where he's going in different places so presumably they must have shot on location keeping in mind that they would have to actually shoot in these places. Um, and I mean, maybe they cheated some of that, but I was still really impressed that if you if you know your New York City, you could watch this this movie and, and map it all out to where they were in different times of these of this jumping back and forth in time in this one particular afternoon. Um, yeah. And I, I, as you mentioned, Michael Shannon is the MVP here. He is so great. <laughs> he cranks up his sort of spring loaded intensity to white hot anger. And he's, he's so desperate to pick up this, this ticket then for reasons that become clear as you go through it. Asian gangsters are involved, gambling debts and, uh, and immigration into America. Like the American dream is that, you know, underneath, all of this uh and uh, some of it isn't entirely plausible but it goes at a hell of a clip it manages to be both intense and funny and uh, i love it at one point shannon who who uh goes off about people saying suck it on tv and how inappropriate that is <laughs> uh yeah and, and it actually ends up being quite touching in the end uh i yeah and i i really loved all of the characters um asif manvi as the guy who's working uh, dispatcher dispatcher yeah. yeah uh i mean it's there's a lot of of nice little character moments throughout the film and uh yeah premium rush i'm really kind of bummed that i didn't see it at the time i would have loved to have seen this on the big screen if i'd had half the chance and that's it for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. Hope you enjoyed this look at the work of David Kep and hope you seek out some of these films apart from his better known titles like, say, Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, which you may not want to check out. And just a reminder that uh, it is a uh, sustainer drive right now at CKDU if you want to support the show and support the station. Find out all the details at ckdu.ca. In the meantime, I'm Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e. I'm Karsten Knox. I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, the name of my blog is Flaw in the Iris. That's where you can find me. Of course, Lens Me Your Ears is on Twitter and on Facebook. And, of course, uh, we want to thank CKDU for the use of the studios, for producing the show, as we do every other week. And they, of course, air it every other week on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. And thanks again to the folks at the Village Soundcast Network, who put all the pieces together and get it up on the podcast platforms so you can listen in on your earbuds and your vehicles or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.
Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.